Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future. This episode of the podcast is supported by Doing the Damage, the only DJ pool focused exclusively on house and dance music, supplying the best remixes, bootlegs, mashups and exclusive promos from their global network of DJs, producers and labels. Check it out now at doingthedamage.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast, including chats with James Hype, Ben Hemsley, Ridney, Vanilla Ace, Tim from the Utah Saints, and many, many more on iTunes, Spotify, and on Mixcloud. Simply search Felix Leiter in the house. In this episode, I talk to Matt Hibbert about growing up and developing in the rich and diverse Liverpool clubbing scene. We cover his residencies at Medication at Nation, the original home of Cream, Bar Bar Fleet Street, John Moore's Student Union, and many more. We touch on the tragic loss of the legendary Garland's DJ Dave Booth recently, and Matt offers advice to young DJs, plus goes into setting up his own label, Techno Prisoners. So, let's get into it. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do, and who they are. Not bad, not bad. About as good as you can be during um, lockdown. I know, yeah, it's... Uh, it's, it's... Yeah, it's strange times. How are you how are you finding it? Yeah, it's been it's not been bad. Like the first week or so, just before they announced the self employed scheme, was yeah. a big panic. It was a bit like, how am I going to pay me rent? How am I going to pay me bills? When am I going to be back at work? As soon as they announced that, even though then it was still you know, like a two month, two and a half month wait before you get your money. That knowing that, yeah, all being well, and I thank God I have got it. Um, and, th- and thank God you did some decent tax returns. Oh. Well, thank- <laughs> <laughs> that means no too far into that. I've literally like this isn't. It's like this is like a self-employed DJ boast. I, my last three years of tax returns were as on the money as as no pun intended as they can be. So I I've basically got you know eighty percent of what I would have earned. Luckily, I know a lot of people. I'm not going to name any names, of course. but sure you know as well who um, were less than maybe what's the word here? Like, less than. Um, Totally honest with the tax man in the yeah. last couple of years. The other, the other, the other knacker again, without going into too much detail. But the other knacker, there's loads of it. But it's also it it, it show it, it takes it only takes into for anyone who's not self-employed, it only takes into account the profit that you show. So, for example, yeah. if you earned or if you if you if you earned from DJ in a hundred thousand pounds, I'm just using nice round figures because for, for my brain. Um, but if you earned a hundred thousand pounds from DJing, but spent eighty grand on studio equipment, DJ equipment, you know whatever else, and put it all through as costs, like first class flights, business class flights, whatever else, and showed that you made a profit of like you know five grand, ten grand on top of that, you're going to be screwed. Do you know what I mean? That that's there's going to be people who've done that, but obviously on much less money. But yeah. you know what? That's that's for that's for the financial times podcast isn't yeah it? that's for the that's for the that's for the financial times podcast but um and i see you having we're going to come back to some um some some football later on but I, I saw you having a little drink so let's get it out of the way it's a year to the day since we um we got promoted at wembley in the league two playoff final the 25th who, of 2019 who, who are we if anyone doesn't know if anyone doesn't know that you is listening Tramier rovers the uh the pride of birkenhead um <laughs> <laughs> it was. out that it was twenty-seven years previous. We, we hadn't. We'd had no forward momentum. We'd only gone down, and we spent three years in the in the national league, and then we got promoted the year before uh, out of the national league, and then we got promoted again last year. We got two in a row, and it looks like we're about to be relegated on points per game uh, by by zero point zero three points. Uh, 
Oh. Goes through yeah, I know. So um, we're, we're gonna we're gonna come back to some lower league football later because I'm a Carlisle fan. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna come back to that later. But let's let's crack on with the, the the music side of the podcast and start where we always start, which is Matt. What's like? Where do you first remember hearing music? Like, was it parents? Do you, I don't know if you have older brothers and sisters. I don't know if it was in the car or if it was at home. Like way before DJing, way before you know dance music or whatever. Just what are your first memories of music? Well, I, I've got an older brother who's three years older than me, but my parents were big. They loved music. They had you know, um, loads of 12-inch vinyl like albums and stuff like that. And when the first, like my memory growing up, me and my brother, when we were both younger, he was three years older than me. We shared a bedroom in the first house we lived in. And in that bedroom was a huge, I don't know, you probably remember them, but like when DJs DJed in like the late 70s and early 80s, they used to have these huge, it was like two, um, turntables and that built-in mixer unit. Like a coffin, but, yeah, like a big coffin. It, it had its own speakers. It was like a huge um, wow. like home thing. Don't know where they got it from. Probably, you know, me and my dad's mate down the pub went, got one there. Do you want it for 20 <laughs> And So we, we had that in our um, our bedroom. So we just spend, I, the one that I remember, I've still got it somewhere. It was the Muppets like soundtrack EP. It was like a, a four, it was like a, a double-double, quadruple EP. And it had just had all the songs from the Muppets, and we just play that. And then there'd be like there'd be like Rykuda albums in there and stuff like that. And we just put them on. And then it's it's really even weirder. My brother's like he went into the RAF and did avionics and then all this metal stuff like, like preparing um, fighter jets. That was his job when he was in the RAF. And as a kid, when he was ten, he set up his own pirate radio station in his bedroom, built a, a transmitter and transmitted. Amazing. Like, I feel so, like we could do a podcast just about that. <laughs> so like it was very much um like the the music as a kid it was always music in the house the radio was on all the stuff like that and they were always having like parties but th- there's a photo of me when i was i think three and for, for christmas they got me it was um what's that brand that, that made like my first um you know it might have been a mattel one and it was a little seven inch record player yeah with a in speaker and when i was like three Four. I had a little seven-inch record box with old, like all my mum and dad's old seven-inch records, and I'd take my record player and just sit in the corner and play my records. There was um, Boney M. We're going to Barbados was one of them. <laughs> People know that Venga Boys covered it and turned it into we're going to Ibiza, but that was I used to carry that, and um, I had the Proclaimers 500 Miles on seven-inch as well, and I loved it, loved it. So it was very much like just I find the photo, I'll dig it out because. Um, I also think it looks like I've pissed myself on it. I haven't. <laughs> I've got these terrible, like, corduroy trousers that me mum and dad have obviously made me wear. That you know, you don't have any say in what you wear, do you? Until, no. you know, all as a child, you don't have any say until you get to be, like, a teenager. And then when you get older, you get with a girl, and then you don't have any say in what you wear again. <laughs> it, was, it was just very much a um, very musical household, very musical family. My dad played the guitar, and he sang. He can sing. Right. I can't. Unfortunately, I can't hold a tune. I'm terrible. But it, it was just very musical upbringing. It was always around me, always. That's that's cool. Because then, then the, we sort of go, like, or I sort of go, the next place I go is like, when were you aware that somebody, anybody was a DJ? Do you know what I mean? Like a mate or a radio, whatever. But it's interesting that almost from the start, you were aware, even though you weren't probably conscious of it, that this thing was to mix records. This thing was to play records. Like, in a way that is different from just owning a, a, se- a separate stack and having a you know a tape player or whatever. So, but can you remember the first time like 
Did you ever see, like, did you, did your dad, D, not me, I don't mean DJ, but well, I do mean DJ, but did your dad ever play on the, that 70s thing and like mix one record into another? And like, were you aware of that as a kid? Yeah, well, his best friend from school, like going back, you know, they literally went to primary school together, was um, a radio DJ in like the 60s and 70s and like the 80s. And he was pirate, what was, uh, was it Radio Caroline? The big, yeah, yeah. The, he was part of that. His, his DJ name was Mike Stand. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So he was very much, he was a radio DJ, but he, he DJed in the clubs around Birkenhead and Liverpool in like the you know, 70s, all throughout the 70s and the 80s. Excuse me. And then um, he was, and that's so when we'd have the, like the parties and stuff, I, I presume, it must, I can't remember because I was too young, but he must have been, you know, doing something. I remember he'd always be around the house and he was always, you know, like, he was a big, like record, he'd hang around and like by day, back in the day, there were the record shops. Yeah. And there's a record shop in Birkenhead. It's not dance music, it's called Skeleton Records. And it's been there for like 50 years. It's above a kebab house in Birkenhead. And um, it's got a huge, like 20 foot skeleton painted on the on the wall outside. And he'd just go in there. And that was, you know, by day, that was what DJs used to do, both, you know, radio and club DJs. You'd spend your day, you were working in a record shop. Yeah. Hung over from the night before. <laughs> Yeah, and um, do that. So yeah, he was probably his name was Dave Evans Evo, and um, yeah, Mike Stan was his radio name, and he um, he was probably the first time me and my brother saw. Hang on a minute, you know, because like you say, we were just still putting records on both ones, and we figured out, oh, you can put one on there. And we, going back to that Muppet thing, we both, oh, what if we play them both at the same time? It just sounds like an absolute load of nonsense. <laughs> but it, it's still that thing, and that was you know, we used to lift the um, lift the needle, and that would yeah. manually start the turret. Oh God, that's this is all feel old talking about this no it's good no it's, it's good memories man and i think you know it's one of those things as well like you know i'm sure we'll come on to this later and obviously it's come up on this this podcast before about rec- about about record shops in in one sense as in like dance music shops you know like um uh like, re- like house record or dance record shops but it's another thing that sort of is missing from the high street these days and obviously it was a part of my youth was like like you just said there, like those record shops that kind of sold everything. Do you know what I mean? Like they sold rock stuff, they sold dance stuff, they sold uh, they undoubtedly normally sold poppers, broken CDs, like normally like computer games. And, and I, but they were sort of just a, and the people that populated those stores were super interesting. You'd always see band flyers, gig flyers. Subculture in itself. Yeah. I imagine it what, like up north, what, in Liverpool, there was a place called the Quiggins and there was a place called the Palace and they're both not there anymore. The palace um, got demolished. It was an underground thing, the palace, and I think it got filled in. Um, it's Ironically enough, it's the club I DJ at now, Bar Bar, it was underneath there. Right. Um, the Quiggins was a huge old building, um, and it got knocked down when they built L1 in 2008, and there was a huge thing to stop it, you know, to stop um, the demolishment. But it was, they say it was a huge, this building, it was record shops, there was like independent clothes shops. It was very much a hippie, you know, like skateboarder. It was, they say, it was, it was all independent people. It's like almost seen as um, you'd be a bit weird if you went in there. Yeah. So you know, weird you'd have like people going in to buy dance music, but then you'd have people going in to you know get their skateboard wheels fixed. Yeah. Then you'd have people going in to buy, you know, like you say, um, hair, but you know, some essences perhaps, you know, some yeah. uh, <laughs> something that wasn't strictly legal at the time. The whole place stank of it as well, yeah. like at typical like, any record shop. Um, but yeah, it was. It was so interesting. There's, there's probably a documentary to be made there about what's missing now from like just like, culture because it was. It was a subculture of its own, the record shop, and as well, it was a very intimidating place to go when you're a young teenager. Walk into a record shop. 
it was like that scene in a western where you'd walk into a bar the music stops stops chairs scratch and you go oh god and you just, it was it human traffic in the film human traffic where there's that scene of him walking in and you just feel like every record he gives me i have to buy it otherwise i'm not coming back in he says it's the biggest tune now how am i i don't know anymore i'm 13 there's eight for this terrible bootleg oh yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I am, I'm always careful in life. Never mind this podcast about looking back on things in, you know, through rose tinted glasses. But I do have a lot of fond memories of being in record shops and like a kind of a refuge for scoundrels. And do you know what I mean? And the people that you bumped into there, and and like I say, the flyers that you saw and the the gossip that you picked up on, and it's you know that goes on. Obviously, that goes on on Facebook walls now and Twitter and Instagram. But um, yeah, it is, it is definitely something that that, that I miss. When, when was there? When was the first time, can you remember the first bit of music that was like yours? Like you either bought it with your own money or it was kind of like given to you or something like, and you were like, this is mine. <laughs> yeah, I, can, I can remember. I, I wanted it for Christmas. It was, um, it would have been Christmas 1992, right? And it was when WWF Wrestling had took over the, you know, the country for kids. Yeah. And we all just got sucked in. We had to stick a book. And I didn't have Sky, so I don't know how I was watching it. I think a friend was taking it for me. And they they released around Christmas time. Uh, Simon Cowell, it was, produced it at the time, Fuller and Cowell. And it was the WWF Superstars Slam Jam. And it was just, it was every, you know how bad you're thinking it was? It was 10 times worse. It had, it had The Undertaker doing a rap. It had like Macho Man doing, doing vocals, Brett Hitman Hart. And uh, I think it got to about number five or four in the in the chart. But I got that for Christmas because I, I was like, anything wrestling related, I need that in my life. And I had, by that point, for, like I had um, in my bedroom, like most kids of like the 90s era, I think it was a Goodman's Hi-Fi. And it was, you know, the two tapes, tape, tape deck, um, record player on the top, two speakers either side, and high-speed dubbing. So, you know, you could record a cassette twice as fast if you wanted to copy a cassette for your mates. Um, and I just listened to that on repeat slam jam. And it had WrestleMania, an, an instrumental track on the B-side. Like, who wants that? I remember I, um, it, my uh, brother one, smashed it, cracked the record. One of one of the best books I've ever re- read was um, Brett the Hitman Hart's autobiography. Yeah, like, I read I absolutely love it. All about the Montreal screw job and all that sort of stuff was amazing. And, and shout out to, um, I mean, you just dropped two heavyweight names there, Fuller and Cal. I listened to a, I don't know if you'll bring it up on this story, but I, I listened to an absolutely belting um, documentary. I think it was on BBC Radio 2, Beyond iPlayer. It's like the Simon Fuller story. Like, oh man, it's phenomenally interesting, like what that guy's done with like, you know, 19 Entertainment and managing the Spice Girls and yeah. kind of, you know, all that stuff. But did you know, have you ever seen that clip of um, Simon Cowell's first appearance on Top of the Pops when he's like dressed as like, a, he's like dressed as a bear or something? <laughs> Because like <laughs> I think he was working as like an intern or something in it for a record label, and they sent him on doing a bit part on top yeah, of the props. Backing dancer for this like terrible act that they had. Because I mean, Stockhaven and Warm didn't he just used to pluck soap stars and go right? You literally stand on stage, we'll do the rest. Stand well, on stage, that's that's the thing. Listening to this fuller thing, and and you can relate it to Fisher in a in a sense, like. But what, what, listening to this Simon Fuller thing, you're basically just going, what they're doing is getting people to, to basically their careers have been get someone, get the public to like someone, then get them to sing a song. 
Like, yeah. you know, so it's like create a TV show, S Club 7, then sing a song. Like, do a talent show, you know, show people like Heartbreak and everything else, sing a song. And it's like, now don't get me wrong, like, my Fisher, you know, is, 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 is there, but it's poor. But it's like, you know, Fisher was a huge surf star. He already had a huge global, like, well, not global, but he already had a huge social media following. He's phenomenally hilarious. He's phenomenally personable. You know what I mean? And then it's like, you know, Lakey and a few other people went, don't sing him a song, just fucking get him to, you know, write him a record. And it's like, the guy's a fucking megastar. And I'm not taking anything away from him. I love him. But like, it's that same thing of like, you know, and you're great at it. It's like, you've got a great personality and that comes across through all your social stuff. And that's the world we live in. I mean, I wish I had the money fish has got. Maybe that'll come in time. Um, I wish I had an accent as well, to be honest, brother. <laughs> and he's put his bald head in glasses. But yeah. um, no, but it's, I mean, I make a, I make a weak comparison, but it's just that thing of we all know that basically we all bought into to Fisher's personality. Now, it's not the only way to do it because we know, like, you know, we know that the camel fat lads, you know, like they're basically all about the tunes, really. You know, they're not selling a personality, really. Although they're both lovely guys, but it's like, it's the music. So it doesn't work for everyone. But it certainly works for for some people. Um, so so then going up, like you've obviously got that that that's that um, WWF track. I mean, I have when you were going through your sort of like your your, your teens, I guess. When um, you only you know you pre going out, starting to sneak out, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Um, what sort of music are you into then? What are you? What are your first memories of like? You know, you were you an indie kid? Were you already into dance music? Were you listening to like the Scouse Bounce stuff? Like, what what was what was around in like in Matt's head when you were that age? At that era, well, you know, we won't get into what was in my head with regards to like sex and women. <laughs> but um, at that time, it, it, it's weird. Like, unless you're from, it probably was the same. It was definitely a North thing. Um, but when you say Scouse House now, people just think Blackout Crew, Donk the Donk. Um, but when, like, I was growing up, my first, like, I remember there used to be live, Radio City was the big station back then, yeah. and they used to live from the Paradox, which was a huge nightclub out by entry, right by entry racecourse, and it used to be live Paradox, 12, midnight till 2, um, on, or maybe 10 till 12, and then it changed, but it was like two hours live, Saturday night, and we'd listen to this when we were like, in like, this would be 98, 99, 2000, when we were 12, 13-ish, and the music we were hearing was just we'd never heard anything like it and scouse house during that era like late 90s through to about 2004-5 when scouse house became popular you know nationally with three beat records and stuff yeah when anton powers took it uh, by signing all the stuff scouse house was such a mix of it was like pumping euro house like it was like german dutch belgian um and then you'd have the huge big trance like like huge like thumping trance ones and it was about it was an amalgamation of loads of different genres of fast, bouncy, vocal, euphoric music. And it yeah. made this amazing like sound. Obviously, you had the, the odd donk. But when people became obsessed with the donk, back then, you'd hear maybe one track an hour have a donk. And yeah. people would bananas from it. It was the club ed's donk sound. And so that was the first real time. I remember my brother would sneak out. He would have been like 15, 16. And he'd go, I'm going with my mates. And it was like, hmm, why are you wearing a Ben Sherman shirt and pants? <laughs> Shiny black shoes. Yeah, you kick us for school shoes. <laughs> Why you got your school pants with Ben Sherman and kickers on? And then he had it. He had. I don't know where he got them from. Even I think he bought them off a friend. He had two Cam belt drive decks, Cam like BDX one hundreds. He had this mixer from Tandy. Terrible. I had no EQs. Just four, five channels and a crossfader, and they had a sampler so you could sample your voice. 
and he and he had, I don't know again, he had this huge subwoofer that you could sit on. It was like the size of it must have been about like thirty inches wide or forty inches wide. So you'd sit on that and he had these two big NEC speakers and an amp. I don't know where he got it all from. But I remember my dad got it for him and he had some like records. He just started buying records then. And so he'd go out. My my mates would come around, we'd be like twelve, thirteen, and we'd go in his room and just put records on and not know how to mix. But we just put them on, and it, there was some just clap. I've just I've got all you've seen. I'll be able to see on the podcast, but there's some of me vinyl there behind yeah, yeah, yeah. me. Standard yeah. DJ you know, Kallax, IKEA Kallax. Yeah. And and um, it just became because up until that point, I wasn't an indie kid, but it was very hard to be, you know, 11, 12, 13 at that age and not be interested in Oasis and Blair. That was that big rivalry. So yeah. I wasn't big into it. I was always it was almost like I was waiting for. Something's got to suck me in here. Some some music and some culture, and um, it was it was that really. And then that, mel- that melting pot of dance music. Yeah, and just hearing that on radio, so you're hearing all these tunes and being like, one tune's a huge trance tune, then there's a big donk tune, then there's a drive and pumping Dutch house tune, and it was like all this, and it was you know just it was all fun, happy music, and that's what it's like. A lot of kids now, so the Clubland, which is still going now, um, yeah. and that's a lot of people's first. That gets you into dance music, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you I mean, for, yeah. For, for me, it was like the the sort of bonkers double CDs and stuff like Hixie and like because I, I and it was I think it was a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, and um, I was on like it was towards the end of like the electrical stuff that we were doing, and we did a big show with um, Ben Nicky, but we had um, oh Jesus, who's that one as well? Um, Darren Styles, and I was like, and I was like, I couldn't give a fuck about Ben Nicky. I was like, Darren fucking Styles. On the lineup, Fuck. I was like, I took my Paradise and Dreams twelve-inch vinyl down and got him to sign it. He was like, "Fucking, I haven't seen that for a while." And I was like, "Fucking!" <laughs> I remember he's. I'm, I worked for well, I worked. I worked. I did a couple of seasons in Ibiza, um, and I worked for Clubland. I was like a DJ and a promoter for them. And we had Darren Styles. It was my job one night to take him to a pre-party, and he was the nicest. Like most people are. Scooter went by the way. Scooter are horrible. Um, surprise, surprise! He, he insisted on a gold, gold encrusted microphone. He wanted, um, but Darren Stars was lovely, and he was the first guy I ever. He introduced me to vodka and cranberry. I've never had it in my life, and he was that's like, a Judge Jules, "That's a Judge Jules drink, by the way." I, now, I, yes, I remember seeing him <laughs> in 2003 having a vodka cranberry, and it was like, yeah. I'm, "I'm sticking to them." <laughs> oh no, champagne cranberry was Jules. Sorry, that was that was Jules's drink, champagne and cranberry. Cranberry, oh, BCC. But we'll come on, yeah, we'll we'll come on to the um the IP for stuff. So yeah. so you you you're mucking about well not mucking about, but you're putting records on, you're fully aware of of, of DJ setups, of music, you buy it, you, you you know, you're getting vinyls, like you all that sort of stuff. Do you remember the first time that you kinda like saw a DJ, like like in person, I guess, being a DJ? Was it a gig? Was it an under eighteens thing? Was it a, was it did you sneak into a club? Was it a school disco? Do you just remember the first time you actually saw someone DJing properly, kind of in person. Yeah, I mean, there's a few where, obviously, like, you go to, like, people's parties and stuff, and that's, I think, more now with these, you know, someone's going to just have a controller in there. Yeah. Top, so much easier, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and a set of rockets, whereas back in the day, if someone was DJing at a party, it was, you know, much, someone had one of their big coffin cases with a set of 12 tents. But first going to the club, like, I think the one that really had the influence on me was, I'd been going out and about... I went to, it was um, 051 in Liverpool, which is now no longer with us. And it was Lee Butler. 
and Little John and Mark Simon were the residents. <clears throat> like, because the paradox had shut at the time as well. Um, and just like, it's that one where the first time you go into a, a proper club, not like a bar, a proper nightclub, uh, you're just not quite ready for what what it's going to be, are you? That, that just, um, the cr- everyone's just going bonkers around you. It's a, it's a, it's almost like you should be eased in. You should get tilted there, like on a school trip, just to like ease you in and go, look, this is what you're going to be doing. Like you're going to be getting into this. This is going to be your weekends when you turn 18 for the next like 10 years. So you need to be eased in. And it's, it was just like everything about the, the, the 051 had the DJ booth really high up. Like in this, it was a weird setup. Like there's no clubs like it anymore. They're all pretty like cookie cutting our clubs, aren't they? It was right up there. And then there was loads of podiums all over. So there was no like de- designated, this is the dance floor. It was just a huge like warehouse with things raised on it. it I think it became like an actual wacky warehouse or a paintball place after. Um, but then after that, I remember, so that was like that. And it's crazy. And then. So you couldn't we- even, so, so interestingly about that experience then, like you couldn't even really see what like the guys were doing. Like you could oh, see yeah. them up in a corner somewhere. Like arms moving. And like phones yeah. on, and like concentration on the face, and so you're almost like going, "What are they? What are they doing?" I'd yeah. love to be able to see what they're doing, because yeah. how how are they making it sound like that? When I've tried to mix with my brother's belt drive decks, I I think when there's a breakdown, quickly mix in another breakdown of a tune and fade them in and out. Don't you think you, you put you mix take your mixtape into school, but like, get on this, and you think brilliant. Excuse me, but then after that, remember we were leaving the 051. And people were like, you come to Sunrise after, I'd be like, what's that? And this was the After Hours Club, which was three till six underground. And that was just completely bonkers because that was the opposite of I want. It was a dead low ceiling, sweaty, stanker poppers, like room aroma. <laughs> don't know if people still do that in clubs. And then um, the music was much tougher because it was After Hours. It was a breakfast yeah. bar, they called it, a breakfast bar. And um, that was probably because you could see in the booth there, you could stand and you're like, do that thing where you could just peek over the pit, the pair specs. Yeah. And be like, oh my God, look at that expensive. You'd be like two twelve tens and a Pioneer DGM 600. I think, um, what did they have on the big red formula sound mixes? All oh, I knew. I fucking hate them. Oh God. We, I've, I saw one, there's one in, at club in Chester. That one was about five years ago, but it was still there. Oh. But I, all I knew was that is expensive because I see the adverts in the back of DJ mag and go, I would love that mixer, but it's seven hundred pounds. I used to used to just buy DJ Mag for the, the hard to find records adverts and like um, what was it, like West End DJ and stuff That's like it. that. Yeah, West End. Yeah, a pair of twelve tens and a new mixing. Oh, but no, they, they were the 051 and um, the Sunrise were the first clubs that we went to, and it, they just blew me mind. Just mind because they were proper clubs, proper nightclubs. So, and was that was the was there a point there where you were just like? Wasn't it being a club? Or were you like, I want to fucking do that? Like, I want to be that guy? Or at that time, were you just still like, this is mad, I don't know what's going on around me? Like, or was 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 there a through thought of being a DJ? Or were you just were you just buzzing to be out drinking and with your mates and with girls and whatever else? Yeah, I think it was just about being out. Because, like, I'd been... When my brother, he, he left for the RAF when I, he was 16, so I was 13. And he said, I'd already been using his decks and I've been buying records and he went, you can have them now. I, you know, I'm going off to up in Scotland. It was. And so I was like, I've got me on decks now. And so I moved them into my bedroom. I had like some speakers and stuff. And that was when I was just DJing, but like so many people, 
I had no, I didn't think I'd ever be a DJ as what I did. Um, I was doing it because I, I loved the music and the music that I liked, I could only buy on vinyl in Liverpool. So it was very much a case of, I love these tunes. I'm going to buy them and I'm going to do a mix cassette or a mini disc at the time that had been, then burned to a CD and track, track mark the CD. So in the car, you can skip it. Um, so I had CDs, me and my friends had CDs, you know, music to listen to. That was it. And it was never, it was a, it's a long time before I ever thought about this could be a, a career, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. But yeah, it was, um, even then going out at, when we were first like 16, 17, 18, it was, I was going out, you know, I was not a tune spotter, but it was more of, you know, um, but at that time as well, it was when message boards had started. Okay. And there was a one in Liverpool. There was two was called Tonight in Liverpool and Clubs in Liverpool. And each of the big DJs had their own like sub forum on there. So I'd been speaking to a lot of them for a couple of years just on there. And so then they were very, they were all great, like Mark Simon, Lee Butler, Little John, Jed Clark, all the Liverpool bunch. And they were very, like, you know, they were like, when you come to the club, come up to the booth, say hi. And so I'd go and say hello. And then some of them would be like, oh, come in. And then, you know, you're in the booth in the nightclub and you're just going, oh, my God. And and that was probably the point when I thought I, this is something I could see myself doing and this is something I would like to do because it's, you know, the view, you flip it from being in the crowd. That's amazing. You see what they're seeing and you see this – adulation that you're just getting for just playing a record and you think that that's up my street yes please yeah i think like i mean i i, I sort of i always gravitated to the dj booth from an early age like, i think i wasn't always that keen on like talking to other people or trying to talk to girls i was always like what's he gonna play next like oh yeah. or this is i tell you what i'd play next like oh or then hearing I, stuff and going what the holy fuck is that like the best feeling ever i used to pride myself on being that guy who would so early when they were mixing the new tune in, I'd be like, I'll tell you what that is right now. He's only, he hasn't even mixed it in properly and I'll tell you exactly what tune is coming in right now. That sort of like real, like, you know what, I'll say it, real like loser DJ bought stuff, isn't it, where we can be like, he's 16 bars in and I can go, I'll tell you what that is right now. That's living your dreamer. I can tell by, I can tell by the hi-hats. Yeah. And it's pathetic, isn't it? But like that—that's what makes us what we are. Like, sad I think it's—I think—I think it's a lot of like it comes through on this podcast a lot, and and my my mates. Like, it is a lot of like music geekery. Do you know what I mean? Like, sort of DJ geekery. Like, it's a lot of people who want to be tucked away in a corner at a party, pulling out the next track, or like you know, asking what the track is, or like you know that kind of stuff. Um, so then, what? I and mean, then, so so this sort of time, you're starting to go out in in Liverpool. Um, you know, you're having a good time. What's like? What's what's Matt want to be? You know, I mean, you sort of mentioned at this point that you know maybe you weren't totally tuned into the fact that you might want to work in, as a DJ. What what did you think you were going to do? Were you, were you like? Yeah, it's weird. So because I was I was DJ, I'd started making music as well. I had a cracked copy of Sony Acid off Kazar, okay. and then I was getting to grips with that, just just messing around and learning. Just you know, there was no tutorials right back then. It yeah, was no just YouTube. <laughs> Literally, same as DJ, and I just learned by trial and error myself, self-taught. And then um, I was making, like, there were terrible tunes, a lot of them, but I was, you know, making it. And there was a, there used to be a, a pub on a Wednesday night up by us when we were, like, 17, 18. Excuse me, that's the Modelo. Um, <laughs> and it was called the Arab, the Arab Park. And by day, it was just a normal boozer. And on a Wednesday night, it charged a pound in and did pound drinks and had a DJ. And it was bananas. The whole church, just like my whole school year would go. 
And so, and they'd play all the same music, and it was it was bonkers. It was packed to the rafters. And I used to make songs and give them to the DJ to play. And he had a he didn't have a CD deck, he just had a CD player. But he just he didn't even mix the tracks. This DJ, he was a hypnotist. He, he like looked like Clinton Baptiste off Phoenix Nights, and he, he'd do like on bank holidays. He wasn't DJ. He'd do a stayed comedy hypnotism act. So he would never mix the tracks. He'd just play them and then just go new tune, new tune. Tell you what and, though, for a pound a pint of all your mates, bet no one gave a fuck. Woodpecker, pound a pint, bottles of best, vodka, Red Bull, and VKs, and then they added Blue Wickets to it. Oh, it's pound a million. And so, like, it, he he'd play my like songs in there, and they were terrible, like donk tunes. But people would be like. It's a good tune, this, you know, like all my mates from school, and I'd be like, oh, good. And then, you, you know, that, that was the first time I heard someone, a song I'd made. I made this terrible mega mix once, just, I, was a, it, I made it a joke, and it had loads of little acapellas and songs. And it even had the Inspector Gadget theme tune in, the Grange Hill theme tune with the Renegade Master acapella on it. And he played it, and people were like, really enjoyed that. And I was like, oh. And so during that time, I actually, me and another guy I knew at the time, we made a, a remix of Kelly's Milkshake in early well, early 2004, it was. Um, and uh, at the time, in three-beat records, you'd go in, and I knew all the DJs, Mark Simon, Lee Butler, Little John, would go in on a Friday afternoon to get their music for the weekend. You know, the, the people, the, you know, the stock, um, staff in the shop would put stuff in their boxes for when they came in to listen to. I went in and said, is this tune? We can't. Can you put it in their boxes for them to listen to? With my phone number on, and we called it right. It was a remix of Kelly's Milkshake. We called the track. Our artist's name was DJ and Punkin instead of PJ and Duncan, and we called it Biker Groove because just before we finished it, we didn't have a track name. It was just called the other. I think it was called Titwank actually, the first name. <laughs> And I said, we need, I said, we need an artist name and we need a track name. And Biker Grove had just finished at R5. And I was like, I'm going for me tip. So I went, Biker Groove, DJ and Punk, funny. Not thinking, you know, anything would ever happen with it. And I, I remember getting a call off Lee Butler. Well, as I was having me tea on Friday, I'd come back from uni, actually on the Friday, and, and um, staying at my mum and dad's. And he went, Ibo, he was like, did you make this? I was like, yeah. He went, it's absolute smasher. I'm going to play it on my show tonight on Radio Because he used to do a show on Radio City, 10 till 2. And then come straight to Garland's. And I was like, what? And he's like, you're going to be in Garland's tonight? I was like, yeah. He went, well, I'll play it there as well. And I was like, my mind is blown. And so, he, yeah, he played that. And it ended up becoming a big tune in Liverpool. It came out on vinyl. And then that was, and then at that point, I was starting to think, hello, I'm the new, uh, you know, I'm the new Springsteen here. I've had my first <laughs> This met, and I got paid, it was like £500. Um, and they, they, I think it was, he said, you can have a pound per vinyl we sell. And there was two of us, and he sold the thousand. He did a thousand of them. So I was like five hundred pound, and I was like, I am not only am I rich, I'm sorted for the rest of my life. I'll just make a tune a year, and you know, it was just I was at uni at the time as well. I was doing creative writing, and I thought I wanted to be like a scriptwriter or you know, um, some sort of stuff like that. And then the more I are started, you DJing? At, are you DJing at uni, by the way? So I was DJing in the student union. Um, Which uni were you at? It was John Moore's. All right. Okay. Yeah, and they used to have... Is this, is this pre-medication and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, this was... Medication started in 2011, and this was 2005, uh, 2006, 2007, 2008, right, okay. like nine. So I took a year out and then did... Went to uni. And then I, I did... I, I did First year, I did media studies, hated it. Stopped, took a year out, and then did um, creative writing. So my like uni career was like five years in total. 
Um, but I was still only paying the £1,000 tuition fees because I got in just in time. Thank God. And then um, it was at that time, like the mid-2000s, it was like I'd gone first went to Ibiza in 2003 and that changed everything about I was Scouse House, Scouse House, Scouse House and then Funky House, Garlands. Went to Garlands over in Ibiza and went to all the other places, clubs. And it was all Funky House and house music and suddenly it, it like broadened my horizons. Like I went, yeah. what is music? Dave and Huey at Garlands. Dave Booth, of course, rest in peace. Um, yeah. Sadly passed away last week. Yeah, we'll talk he, about Dave later. Yeah, and then I just, all of a sudden, I was like, it was like a, a new door opened and they were like, look at all this new music and this new style of music. And it was like, look at all the people dancing. All these women in Ibiza are much more attractive than the women. You know, it's just like this style of music attracts these people and it's so much, it's fun. And it's it, it just changed everything. So I got back from Ibiza in 2003 and was much more into that and started making that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, so at the uni days, I, I got a bar job. Like a lot of people say, how do you get a, a gig, your first gigs in bars and clubs? I always say, go and get a job at that club as a barman or a glass collector. Exactly. And then um, I was there for like a year, but like started speaking to the Ents manager, a bit lovely fella called Che, Che Burnley. And um, after about a year, there was a case one night where he went, what are you doing on Friday? I'm working here on the bar. I went, do you want to warm up for the DJ? Yes, please. So you, you jump at the chance. It's, you know, it's no pay at the time, but it's, you know, you'll get, I'll give you a few pints. And I built the trust. And there was a few times where DJ got there late and I'd always make sure I, you know, that I'd be just a, a, not my records, but someone's records would be in the booth locked up. And so I could jump on, you know, and do the first half hour till he got there. Yeah. And it built to the point where I ended up running our own night. It's called Electro Sex. And it was, it was a good night. We ran that a few times. We done, we done monthly. We ended up doing silent discos at the Uni of Liverpool through someone. And then we, we did that. And that only stopped when me and a friend went to Ibiza in 2009. We stopped that brand. It was sort of like, you know, it's right, something runs its course. Yeah. And you just go. But by that time, I'd like left uni. And it was a case of, I was earning money DJing. And almost like the DJing had took over from my uni. I was like, I'm, t- I'm missing uni in, in the day sometimes because I've DJed at night. But I was like, why am I even still trying to do this uni thing? Just because I'm, you know, I'm paid to go to uni when the music, I enjoy it. It's something I could do as a career. So it was almost like a, a bit of a dilemma. I'm sure not a lot of DJs have that before that time where they go, should I carry on this music thing? Is it a viable career? But I've always had really supportive parents and they were a bit like, um, not like like wild childs or nothing, but like they were very much, you know, like free spirits when they were younger. Like they met on a holiday camp, working on a holiday camp. Um, they, they hitchhiked back. They went, they like hitchhiked as far as he could go in Europe, got to southern Spain, ran out of money, and went, are we going to get home? And then hitchhiked all the way back, getting like staying for a week somewhere, earning enough money to get to another city, and got all the way back. And my dad earned enough to send me mum home on um, on a boat from like Barcelona. And then he said, I'll meet you in a week, I'll get home. And like so that's they were always very supportive and like creative. So they understood you. A nine-to-five office job wasn't for me. So they were very supportive of that. Even when they found out, I was like, yeah, I won't be coming back from Ibiza to graduate uni because I've got a job out here, which they loved. They loved hearing that via an email back in the day. So, um, yeah. I think it's a big choice. I think it is a big choice for a lot of people. Like, I know, like, shout out to Sean Harrington, who was, like, one of the very first episodes of these podcasts. Like, he DJed all through uni and then he sort of decided, you you keep, because even when you finish uni, you've still got all those gigs. You're still yep. kind of quite popular. You've you've spent two, three years building up these gigs in this rep. You might be doing like 
you know, you might be doing a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then you might be doing one Friday or Saturday or whatever as well. So you, you can be on like relatively decent money. Like as a, as a, as a student DJ, you exactly. can be on relatively good money. Um, and it's, if you're kind of into it and you're making music and it's difficult, you, you keep going, well, why would I, why would I not do this? Like, it's, yeah, <laughs> like, why am I like planning on stopping this and trying to get a career writing and stuff when, yeah, it's like the thing where you go, I've felt, almost fell into this. I'd be stupid to stop it when things could potentially keep going. And he did. With the med, like I, we, do, we started doing the pre-party. That was how I met the, the people there. So I did the pre-party for them. The medication. For, medi- for, medi- for medication. I used to do the pre-party at John Moore's. And so I, I did that for like several years. And that's how it led to that. Um, so tell us, and for anyone who doesn't know, uh, explain a little bit about, about medication. Well, medication was... Um, years it was the biggest student party in the country it was at nation the home of cream every wednesday and it was very much it was you know it if it wasn't at nation it wouldn't have been the same it, it was you know a coming together just a once in a lifetime thing and if anyone had ever never went to nation you'll never understand what, what that venue was like for dance music it was just the main room was just incredible the, the courtyard for trance because the heist was just incredible and even the annex was just an incredible room and there's no club like this anymore so it was a big, the, the, the biggest student. That was three rooms. I had a cheese room, the main room. The main room and cream was dance music and an R&B room in the annex. And it was um, summer of 2011. I've been doing the pre-parties, like I say, the, for the student union. And they rang me, Mark and Jace, the owners, and they said, uh, can you come in the office? And I'd only been in the office once when we started. So I thought, hmm, what's going on? I thought they're sacking me from the pre-party. And instead they said, uh, how would you feel about being a new main room DJ? And I was like, I had no idea. I thought you were going to ask me to be the, the party room DJ because I was comfortable on the mic. And, a lot of things up. and he just said, the old DJ, you know, we think he's around his course. He's not playing what people want, stuff like that. And I just thought, you know, yes. I said, I don't want to take anyone's gig. You know, that's that, what was that fear as a DJ? I, think, I was like, I'm not, I don't want him to think. And he went, no, 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 he's gone. Um, and he was happy to go. He, he realized it had run his course. So I took over. And um, I was there for nine years. Yeah, just or eight years, eight years. They sacked me. Yeah, <laughs> sacked me and my friend. Yeah, yeah in um, January 2019. They moved venues. It was it was a long story, but um, it was, they were just, that, those years, especially I'd say 2015, um, the final, we had that final year at Nation. We moved to a Friday and it changed everything again. And then we moved to the Arts Club. And there was like those three years, 2015 to 2018, at Nation the Arts Club were just the craziest. It, it, it felt like being like a superstar DJ with DJing to those gigs every week. It was it was it was insane, like just insane. And that's where a lot of my like I hate using the word, but like fa- the fan base, the people that like 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 me in Liverpool come from that era when I was doing Barbar Thursday, Med Friday, um, Barbar Saturday, and um, it's still like you know people still come up to me now. Nation's been demolished for nearly five years. Every single gig, every week, someone will come up to me, little scouser, and just go, Evie, about nation, will not They'll just go, Evie, that nation. And I'm like, yeah, it was, mate. And he's like, why did he knock it down? I'm like, don't know. Don't know, mate. And he just yeah, go. They knocked it down before it was going to fall down, I think, in the end, probably. I mean, if if people knew, like, I mean, that building, it was just, it. <laughs> I think it, like, it was the stains and, like, the, the mould was keeping it together. It was like, I always said, in the, the Blues Brothers, where they, at the end, they, they, they turn up in the car outside the, in Chicago, and it's done all this crazy stuff, and they get out to run to the Cook County Assessment's office, and the car just falls apart. It's like gone. 
I've got you here. Now I'm finally going to fall apart. And that was what, like, they must have, when they went to Demolish Nation, just take one brick out and the whole thing would have just collapsed. My, my favourite my, my favorite Nation story, or the funniest, maybe my favourite, my funniest, we went to uh, to Cream to see, like, uh, we were, like, because we were banging to Youssef and all that kind of stuff. So we'd gone down to, like, see Yoss in the, in the annex, to be honest. I think it was, I can't remember who was in the main room, embarrassingly, but I was never that massively into trance, but we'd gone to see like Yoss and that in the annex and um, it's quite young and um, we were at the door and we were sort of waiting because we were on guest list because we'd booked Youssef and all this, but we were quite nervous because like we just hadn't been before and it was all, you know, there were loads of huge doormen and yeah, and all this. But then there was this, this scouser came and they were like, God, just wait, you know, I'm not going to do the accent, but they were like, wait there lads. So we were like waiting just like while they were dealing with this kid. And they were like, they were like searching him. And he had a pair of trackies on. Oh no, he had a pair of jeans on. But they took his jeans off, and he had a pair of trackies on underneath his jeans. Then they took that pair of trackies off, and he had another pair of trackies under that. <laughs> this is like outside the door of nation. And I was just like, "What the fuck is going on? Like, where have I come?" Yeah, what is going on? And just it was the things I saw in that club, like just. I mean, there'll never be another place like it. And, like, on one hand, I'm glad because there shouldn't be. But, like, if that club was still around now, I just think the nights they could be putting on there. There's all these big events. And this was a, a three-room venue where you could put 1,000 people in one room, 1,000 people in the annex, and you could put 500, 500 in the annex, 1,000 in the main room, 1,000 in the courtyard. The events you could put on in there now, just, you know... It's just, and, how, and how did you get there? So, so going back a little bit, how did you get into uh, into Barbar? Barbar was one where was that was that pre was that pre doing the the medication pre party or was that like yeah, yeah just talk to us about yeah. Barbar. Barbar was as a company they've only got now I think uh, they used to own I think they own now like nine sites but um, back then there was more in Liverpool alone now they've got Fleet Street which is where I'm at Barbar Fleet Street they own Modo on Concert Square uh, they own this Tabac which is a calf. Um, and there's another one, I forget what it's called, Fredericks, which is like a, a jazz, sort of like cool lounge bar. But they used to, and then there's um, Bar Bar Nottingham as well, but they used to have Leeds, they used to have three in Manchester. Um, they used to have one in Wigan, very briefly. So they, had, they used to have much more, but they downsized. Cause basically, they're, like any company, they went, if it's not making money, we close it, and we concentrate on the sites that make money. In the end, that became Nottingham and all the Liverpool sites. Uh, and Modo, I, I got a call off. It was, it might have been the, my friend, he, the ENTS manager from the student union said, uh, have you got a given on Monday? And I said, no. And um, he went, oh, would you like to do Monday nights at Modo? 10 till 2, uh, four, you know, £10 an hour. And I was like, yeah, go on. You know, what else am I doing on a Monday night? I play football till 8 and I'll, I'll turn up. So I remember doing that. Was, that was early 2009. And that was my first foot in the door of the company. And then you know, you meet the manager, the bar manager, and the bar staff, and I was it was an open format, um, like most midweek bar jobs were. I enjoyed it. It was easy. It was fun. It, it would get it would get reasonably busy because you were on Concert Square. And then from there, it was um, there was another bar bar at the time, Harbin Street up the road, and the manager uh, from Modo moved there and said, "What are you doing Tuesday, Thursday?" And I was like, "Nothing." He went, "Do you want to come and do the same?" And so at that point, like I was working. Monday Modo, Tuesday but the other bar bar, Wednesday Student Union Med Pre Party, Thursday there. All for like, you know, like ten pounds an hour, but it was more about, you know, you become I said you become known as a reliable DJ. And then I went to Ibiza for the summer of two thousand nine, so left those. But they said when you get back, they'll still be there for you. So I was like, Okay, that's good. 
so I went off to Ibiza for April till October 2009, got back, and they were still there. And it, it just became that thing of if a gig came up another side, I ended up going to Deansgate Locks, um, the bar bar there on Saturdays. And that was like, you know, open format, but a Saturday night residency. That was my first proper Saturday night, like club residency where I could play sort of stuff I liked. And um, so I always, the end goal, always, I was like, one day I'll play at Fleet Street. But the DJ there was a guy, a lovely guy called Andy Brisk, and he'd been there for like 15 years. And he was um, the, Elaine, who's the head of the company. She loved him. She was like his the son. She never had. Well, I don't know if she has got a son, but she was like his son. So um, it was <laughs> it was a big shout, Ollie Clark, by the way, for listening. Their actual son. So I always thought, you know, maybe if he retires, he's not. He was an architect, Andy Brisk. I thought if he ever says, look, I don't need this Thursday, Friday, Saturday stuff anymore. Um, maybe what well, I'll get that. But then, so I, I met loads of friends through Barbara for doing the other sites. <clears throat> It was a guy called Steve Rock, who's one of my best mates now. And it was, I'd been doing Thursdays in Chester for propaganda, and that had just finished. They'd just finished their run at this club. And um, it was during the World Cup 2014. And I played 40 on a Thursday night, got in, had my tea. It was about 10 o'clock. I hadn't had a shower, and I got a text off Steve Rock. I didn't know him that well at the time. I'd knew him through, I'd met him at Fallowfield Bar Bar doing like a gig there. And he said, Matt, what are you doing? I went, nothing. He went, can you get over? DJ hasn't turned up at Thursday night bar bar fleet. I remember saying to me, my dad at the time, um, I was like, I want to go to bed. I'm knackered. And he went, is he your mate? I went, yeah, I don't know him that well at the time, but like, you know, he's been good to me. And he went, do him a favor then. I went, you're right. So I said, I'll have a shower. I'll be there by 12. Went over, covered. Um, terrible night. Hardly anyone there. Um, middle of the summer, World Cup. Did it. Was like, you know what? I've done that covered. Next day, you get a call. How would you like to do upstairs in the club room next week and every week? I was like, what? 150 pound a night, and I'm like, all because I took that one chance to do someone a favour when I could have just gone to bed. And then the Thursday nights took off. They changed them to Matty but Project, and then the summer of 2015, Andy Brisk said, "I've had enough. I'm retiring from. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do and do me." Um, design stuff and I got the Saturday and that's now five years and that's really when I got the Saturday in because in, that's when I became if you were a scouser you could see me Thursday night in Barbar for the student night or the students even medication on a Friday and Saturday at Barbar and that was when really cemented me as like what when I used to go and see Lee Butler Little John I became in, I was in crazy really in my head I was like I've become that guy that people will go let's you know that a Liverpool DJ. I was suddenly a, a mainstay Liverpool DJ. It was a, a long road. But like I say, there's so many lucky breaks and just... It right comes time. up so often on the podcast, though, of like, you know, that kind of like standing in that one night for someone. I mean, same it happened to me once in like Tokyo and Newcastle. It's like, oh, can you do last minute text, last minute call? Can you do tonight? Then you're like, you do that night and then they go, oh, can you do every Friday now? And you're like, yeah. And it like, it, it happened. It, it, so many people on this podcast have said... You know, like like you get that call, you turn up, you, last minute you do it, and then that's it. That's how you get the gig. I'd say pretty much, like almost ninety percent of the gigs I've had in my life at residencies have been through doing something like that. A last minute, I, the advice people you're probably the same. I get loads of people just ask me advice on my Twitter, my Instagram, or just to come up and just ask me. And I will say, if you get like you've got to be. Like, there's a lot, I won't name any names, but I've given this advice to many people. And like, they've said, what can I do to get more gigs? And I'm like, you need to be reliable to, to the point where I don't care if you plan to go out with your mates. 
If you get a call at eight o'clock going, can you cover tonight, 10 till four? Forget that it's your mate's birthday. Go, look, this is more important because this could lead to more work or a job, or even if it's like saying not a job at that club for that company, or you know, or even if it's not on that night, it'd be look, look, he was good. We've got to, we, what were you doing on Tuesdays? Oh, go on. And then it's that in. And then once you're in, as long as you're good and, you know, you can hold the crowd and do a job, that's how you start. A lot of people now, they just want to go like, you know, they expect, how can I get a job in here Saturday night? And I'm like, oh. you're asking me, how can I, how can you take my job for a start? It's the same, you, you probably, you know, how much do you pay for this? I'm like, well, sorry, like, you don't say to the checkout person in Tesco. <laughs> I could do this. Hey, I'm a yeah. I'm a checkout person as well. <laughs> I'm a checkout. I mean, yeah, the two things, like the advice thing's interesting. Like for me, it's always like a really simple one, which is, how do you get gigs? Have gigs. So like, and they're like, well, well how do you get gigs? Think about somewhere you know and you like, and think about the quiet night and they don't have a DJ. Go and tell him you'll do it for nothing, and you go and do every. Tuesday night when it's dead, you print your own flyers, get your mates down, flyer it. You just get 15, 20 extra people coming every Tuesday, turn up every Tuesday on time, don't get mortal, don't break the equipment, do a good job. Soon as that fucking Friday, Saturday night DJ has a night off, who are they going to call? You, dickhead, because everyone's fucking lazy and you've got a ready raid replacement there, ready to fucking go. I'd rather, oh no, I'm going out, I'm going to have a night in, I'm going to get a Domino's in, I'm just going to go out my mates to the pub. No, you've got it, like, if you want to like get far in this industry, either like obviously the only way to go is make a load of smash hits, be put number ones. But if you want to like have a career as a club DJ in a city and build a following and get people to like, you know, I think it's it's very much become it's right going off on a tangent. The re- to be a resident DJ is almost like a dying art in a way. People want to just be that guy who has a hit and then goes touring, and it's like. That's not how it works anymore. And I think the same thing happens a lot of ways. I think a lot of these new artists who are having hits and going off and straight away playing your huge clubs and festivals, if you said to them, right, we need you to do a five-hour, six-hour set on a Saturday night, no chance. Because no. all they can do is one-hour, two-hour showcase, main you know, slammer sets. They There's don't also know- a total difference. Like one of my mates is a really good, uh, really good comic. Actually, shout out to uh, you might know Adam uh, Adam Rowe, but my mate Dan does a podcast with him. So Adam and yeah. Dan's in, uh, have a word. But like we talk about it all the time. Like you know, I'm a resident DJ. I've done a bit of touring, but I'm not a big deal. But it's like he's the same. He's not a big name comedian. Every time, pretty much like we have to prove ourselves to people in front of us. Whereas those big name DJs, you walk in to see Fish or whoever, you're already buzzing and he can fart down a fucking tube and you'll dance to it. But like, we have to prove ourselves every time. I know you've got a following, but even then it's like every night, you've people are looking at you like, go on then, dickhead. And you've got to fucking pull it out. Like, you know. It's, I don't think people understand quite how, I don't know if you've ever read it, but you have some, say your friends come out to the bar and they're like, they come in the booth for a bit, and they, they'll go, it's quite intimidating, this. And especially, like, we are, the booth in Barbar now is great. We put it right in the, it's right against the wall, and it's raised. So now everyone faces that way. You know, yeah. we, the, like, it should be, the DJ should be the focal point of the club. But I say that's the difference between a bar and a club for me. You can walk into a bar, and if you go, I can hear the music, don't know where the DJ is, you should be able to walk in straight away and be like, there is the DJ. That is the focal point. That is the way we face, because it is a club. And that's how you get that club reaction, isn't it? And that's the difference. And we've had the, the booth there for like three years now. It changed everything up there. We've got a new sound system. But yeah, it's, it's that thing of people who aren't don't do it, aren't DJs. They come in 
And all of a sudden, they go like, all, all the eyes, literally the eyes of everyone are on you. And again, like, you can play a tune, and it goes off. 99.9% of people are just going bananas, just bananas. There'll be one person, just put the phone up to you, get this shite off. <laughs> get this shite, and you just think, mate, no one like, do you know what I mean? And you just think, like, Jesus Christ, man, look around you, the place is going, the place is just bouncing, going bananas. And it's like, get this shite off. Yeah. And like, you just, I don't think people realize, like you say, it's, I call it like I call it like problem solving on a mass level with a, t- a countdown to silence. So it's yeah. like you're, you're basically trying to like problem solve, i.e., try to solve everyone's fucking problems with one record. And if you don't do it in minus thirty eight seconds, it's going to be silence, and everyone's going to be booing and shouting and chucking shit at you. So it's like it focuses the mind, um, <laughs> which is which can be difficult. Tell us a little bit about um, the new record label that you launched. Oh yeah, so it was um, it was something I've had just in mind for a while because I had for a start I had a bit of bother with my SoundCloud over a, a remix I put up uh, it was a remix of Talkers Medical like um, and I've done loads of remixes I did the Groove Up series I've done loads most people you know you put a remix up and it's it's not even it's not like it's an edit or a bootleg it's a remix so it's a, an original composition of mine the only thing of hers was the vocal and she took it that she issued a copyright strike and got it took down and that gave me an, an actual strike on my account, my first ever one. And I was like, I didn't know it was here at the time. I just thought somebody reported it. So it got took down. There is quite but, a famous There is quite a famous story behind that, though. Like you, so like it's Coco or something, isn't it? And like basically she kind of has had this ongoing huge, yeah. you can go and Google it. Like it's not just like, That's this isn't bit. just like a normal thing. She's had this like really long ongoing thing with like, is it Tiger Records or something? I can't remember. Yeah, and they both claim they own the rights to it, and it's—I think it's literally still going on to this day. So I was hoping that I could use that to my advantage, but no. So I uploaded it again. Do you know sometimes something gets cut down? So I uploaded it again, um, filtered the intro and outro just as a little snippet, and she took that down. And she emailed Barbar, my the GM, who's one of my best mates, going, "This Matt Hibbert is stealing my intellectual property. You should sack him." And I was like, Jesus Christ, it's a bit much. And he cc'd me into the email. I sent a really nice email back, blah, 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 blah. Nothing back. So I've got two strikes in my account. So that song is is gone now. It'll never see the light of day. It's, it's secret in my sets now. Um, but so I was like, so hey, I was like, I need a new SoundCloud account for. Um, well, if you get two strikes, you can't have uploads enabled on your right. download. Even on a private, and for people who don't know, when you're sending demos to labels now, most of them request that it's a private SoundCloud link. Private downloadable SoundCloud link. So I was like, I can't fucking do it now. So I was like, A, I need, I could just start another one, but it needs to be a premium one paid for so I can have unlimited uploads. And then I thought, why not do more? Like, Like, if I had my own way of putting out free music, like, you know, there's a lot of music out there that just doesn't get found. I spend, I don't know what you do, but like, cause it's my full time job. I spend 20 hours a week just on SoundCloud just searching. And if I find two or three tracks that no one else has got, whether it be a remix, an original by some unknown artist with 10 followers, or even just like a little edit, um, it's worth the time. Cause then I've got that track that no one else has got. It's almost like when you, it's basically my, the equivalent, the modern day equivalent of going record shopping yeah. and you know, like tune digging, crate digging. And so I thought, I've got stuff there that I can just put it on my account. But if I had a label to put it out on, um, and then it's about building a brand. 
Yeah. And then, you know, once you've got a, a brand label, and I've got people, you know, I've got, I think I'm at 8,000 now SoundCloud followers. But then an old friend of mine, he was a DJ, he was a mashup DJ. I don't know if you, do you remember Dean Mac? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he'd quit the business. He had, um, it was it was really bad for his mental health, and he made a decision for his, his kids. I'm quitting the music, you know, and his account was dormant. And I said to him, what are you doing with your SoundCloud account? Because I've got a brand here that I'd like to launch. And ideally, I was like, I, he had 55,000 followers. And I said, wow. would you be willing to hand over the account? Do you know what I mean? Uh, and he was like, well, if you give me, like, I think it was 150 quid. And I went, to get that, you know, and um, I don't know, I don't condone buying SoundCloud followers, but I was like, this that's is different. That's different, yeah. The beauty I found with this was, I said, um, his followers, when he had, when he was doing it, like 2015, 16, 17, he said the bulk of my followers were 15, 16, 17 year olds, and I said they were into like that mashup style. Then they're all yeah. going to be in tech house and tech techno. Now. Yeah. Now. So I said that is an inbuilt following, and I did me do. I did the check because I said to him, "Be honest with me. Did you buy any of these? Are they bots?" And he said, "No." And I used it, there's things you can do now, and doing algorithms you can use to check. And he was, they were all legit. And I, I checked, so I thought. This would be a perfect way, you know, an inbuilt following to launch. And so that's where Techno Prisoners came from. That was the name I came up with, Techno. Tech space, no, Prisoners, not Techno, because someone's took that, but I didn't want that anyway. Um, and then it was just a case of going, right, I need a tune to launch it. I had my, um, it was Birds was the track name. It was the old studio BIC Gales vocal. And yeah. someone had to sign that, but I was, I was just off the back of um, having the copyright issue with Coco, and I was like, I don't want to sign a track with a vocal, you know, because it, it, all it can do is come back to haunt you. So I was like, I'll put that, that will be the launch for the Techno Prisoners label. And I've got, um, I'm, I need to put the next one up, I see, in the next, excuse me, few days, but we've done, we've got four releases so far. Um, a guy from Brazil, a lovely, Jonathan um, Moretes, um, Kia, a lad from Manchester, and we've just put Greg Lease, um, or Greg Lease, a three-track EP. He's from um, where is he from? He might be from up your way, actually. I'll double check. Um, so what did you yeah. do with? So what did you do with Dean SoundCloud? Did you merge it, or did you just repost from it, or, or how? What did you do? Like, like he um, handed it over to me. He handed me, like gave me the login, and I said, I, I said, are you sure you want me to? Because I'm going to delete all your stuff. I'm going to wipe it clean, rename it, and just change everything. And he said, yeah. yeah. He said he just he's out. He went completely cold here. He said it was, um, it's probably, I don't know if he'd do it, like, but worth getting maybe him on to talk about because he, he quit because he said he couldn't just, it was not good for his physical mental health. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just wiped the account. It took a while to delete everything, just everything gone. Um, rebranded, relaunched, new logo, um, yeah. videos, stuff like that. And then it, I really didn't realize how much work it is, even just a free label. It's, you think, I'll just upload, I'll, I'll, someone will send me a demo I'll go I'll have that can we put that up for free yes do the artwork get it up honestly like it takes a whole day just putting one release out because you've got to synchronise your Insta your Twitter your Facebook your YouTube you've got to have your 60 second Insta videos ready you've got to have your artwork ready you've got to liaise with the fella you've got to have it and just like honestly like I'm not saying I wish I didn't do it just really think about it if you if you get it. Never had any idea how much work it was going to be. It just makes me think that you know, like you look at the label, you know, the big, the huge independent. You're blank. Um, the lads yeah. from Burnley, aren't they? Or Black Blackburn? Blackburn, and yeah. God, they they must 
because they're churning out three or four a day now on YouTube. They must have a serious team doing the work because it's so. I mean, my team is me, and I, I might occasionally get me misses to do something to help me, like some Photoshop. Um, it's just like I had no idea how much hard work it was, but it's 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 at the same time it's fun and it's learning. It's networking as well, and it? it's one of the reasons I do this podcast is meeting people and having different chats with different people that you might not normally chat with. Well, the, the first one we signed was that guy from Brazil. And he sent me it and he said, hi, Matt, you know, I, I, I like your style of your music. I've seen you've got this new label. This track might be up your street. It was, it's a great, lovely, groovy house track. And I said, I'd be glad. I was like, you're from Brazil? And he was like, yeah. I was like, me missus come down. I was like, that's a weird spelling of Jonathan because it's like J-H-O-N. Spanish spelling. And yeah, it's bonkers. I've just had one. Some fellow from Mexico send me one today. Um I need to actually listen back properly to it, but it's it's smart. It's I say without getting too cliche, but music just brings all these people together. I've I've had like my, my style of music. It turns out I've had people. Um, oh, South America seems to be a big fan of um, like Spain and South America and Portugal like this upbeat, like groovy house style. It's it's their kind of style of music, and so you know maybe someone was like, you need to come to Chile for a gig. I went well. I said get a promoter to book me, and I'll be <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sounds sounds good, mate. So, I mean, coming back to the to lockdown, I don't want to get like bogged down and I'll get down it. But how do you see like the way out of it? I don't mean politically. I mean like club wise, and you know, like uh, what what's the chat with the people you know in the industry? Like, what are you thinking about it? What do you see coming out of this? What's your thoughts? Yeah, it, it's it's been a weird time, isn't it? Because I don't think anyone really saw it coming either. Really, it was only the last couple of days. It was Paddy's Day was the one, because I don't know what's like where, where you are, but in Liverpool, Paddy's Day is just one of the biggest days of the year. No matter what day it falls on, it was a Tuesday this year. Um, we're talking, it's one of, if not our biggest earner at Barbossley Church. It's bonkers. And so it was, the, we, lockdown was like, they shut the bars and clubs on the Friday to so the Thursday yeah. last night. So the Tuesday was, we had an okay night, but nothing you know, like it should have been. And that was when the first alarm bells, I think, in the industry in Liverpool, excuse me, rang. And so it, it happened so fast, we all closed. And then by like the Monday, when the proper lockdown was on, all the bars were shut, locked up, gone. And there was no, like, see, by that point, there was no, like, no one had any idea when it was going to reopen. And even now, he's announced, we're recording this, should say, on um, Monday the 25th. And he's just come out and announced that all shops are going to reopen on the 1st of June or around then. Yeah. So it's no word on pubs, clubs. And the thing is, pubs will be able to reopen first. But in terms of nightclubs and bars, I'm still thinking some people have said optimistically is September, late September, like Freshers' time, September, October. Well, that, was, that was the thing I was going to bring up was Freshers because both for both of us and for a lot of DJs, gigging DJs, Freshers is a huge milestone in the year. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, like, I was exploring this with, um, I was talking to Terry Deja Vu from Hull about this the other day, and we were saying, like, he brought up a great point, which is, it's not just about me being selfish about wanting to DJ and stuff, which obviously I I really miss, but, like, if students en masse don't go back to cities like Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle, that's firstly a huge chunk of money, not just for the nightlife economy, but for shops, restaurants, bars, petrol stations, all the rest of it. And also, if, if all those students don't go back to those cities, what the hell are all those houses going to do sitting empty? Because no one's going to pay for them. So then you've got a load of landlords not earning money. Like, it boggles my brain to think that if unis don't go back, 
you know, I think there's going to be some massive repercussions. The knock-on effect, like, so people aren't thinking like that, aren't they, at the minute? The knock-on effect of of the students not going back in all these cities, like, I'm sure, like, cities like, cities like Liverpool, um, you know, Newcastle, Manchester, Leeds, will be fine, in a way, because they're huge metropolitan cities. But there's some cities out there that literally rely on the income that having this 20,000 students that come in, Durham's a great one. Somewhere even like Lincoln, in a way, even though it's a great city, a cathedral city, like, the nightlife, certainly I probably imagine like the midweek nightlife is completely solely reliant on York. those things. Yeah, you're exactly there. They're completely reliant. These are old-fashioned cities where the nightlife is completely reliant on this huge student base being there. And if suddenly they can't go there, then things are going to get much, much worse. I just hope that, like I've said from almost the start now, I've said, if you said to me I could be back at work by Christmas, back to normal in a club, everyone's allowed in. I'd probably take that now. And that, that would be taken into effect. The self-employed scheme would have to continue for, for us. Um, but, it's, yeah, it's it's unprecedented. Of course, at the minute you've got all the festivals cancelled. Ibiza, basically almost, they're trying to open on the 1st of July, aren't they? But, like, who's going to go if you're going to have to sell? I think, I think Ibiza will be open. I think beaches will be open. I think terrace, terrace you know, you'll be able to sit on a terrace and drink a beer, but I don't think you'll be able to go to Amnesia or High or whatever. I mean, that's how, that's my thoughts. I, I don't know any information. It's just that's how I feel about it. It's saying, like, I, I can't just see any conceivable way how that can be seen as safe, considering we've all been, especially in Spain, where they were locked inside their own houses, and if you went out without going to the shop, you got arrested. So how can they go from if you leave your house? And that was what it was like in Ibiza. If you left your last month, how can in the space of six weeks you go from if you leave your house not to go to the shop, you go to jail to oh you can go to El Row, <laughs> you can go to Amnesia, you know yeah. you can you can go to DC ten and be crammed in with five thousand others. It just I think for me for me like and again you know talking to Dan who's is a circuit comic like we were sort of saying like one of the gigs I do. Is um, I have to get you up for it. Actually, a lot of the people, like half the reason this podcast is, I, I chat to people who we've booked for this little sh- little show. Um, for fortunately, a lot of them got binned off, like the Louis Dunmore one and um, the Ryan Miles one and stuff. But like, just to, it's like a little gig. It's about twenty odd miles from Newcastle. It's like a little. Um, it's called Peter Lee, but it's like a little club, little dark, little like low ceiling, like two hundred and fifty cap club. It's absolutely great. Um, and like for me, they're the sort of gigs that are going to be first back because if you live in a little community like that, and if you know that most people in that community are all right and there's not a load of cases, and you know that you're going to know 80%, 90% of the people that are in that club, you feel quite comfortable. Do you know what I mean? Going to like a local club with people you know. As soon as you start going, do you want to come down Liverpool from somewhere else and be in a huge, big, you know, venue with people you don't know where they're from and where they're like, that's when people are going to be like, oh, I feel a bit nervous about it. Like they like say, these big events, same reason as festivals, they're going to be like clubs will be late coming back. A big event will be the last thing that will be allowed back because, like you say, people coming from Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, all to go to you know, um, McCree Fields or anywhere, yeah, somewhere that down to Bramley Moor Doctor Circus or you know, yeah, MK was doing regular ones there. It, it just can't happen, it can't happen until. Either the government say it is safe to do this now, everything is back to as normal as we can go, or there's a vaccine. Yeah. And even you just think, you know, so hopefully, like to say, Barbar holds upstairs like 700, that's a small, low ceiling venue. You hope that venues yeah. like that, like your gaff there, you hope that these places will be able to reopen a little bit sooner than the super, super clubs. And at the end of the day, 
us who DJ in these places and these smaller clubs, we need the income more than the super clubs. Yeah. And the super, not that we need money more, but I'm sure Fisher's doing okay, and you know Patrick Tottenham isn't worrying about how he's going to pay his mortgage. You know, yeah. it's um, it, I'm sure he's got enough in the bank. You know, unless I don't know, maybe he's got a gambling problem. Who knows? Well, talk, well, this is this is a great link. So I don't know if you're a gambler, but I want to talk a little bit about Tranmere and about Carl. Not too much because I know you've got your own Tranmere podcast. But <laughs> one of my one of my big memories. I don't know if y'all remember this, and I will balance this out in a second. So don't worry. One of my favourite memories is like as a kid. I'd have been about sixteen at this point. Was a uh, Carlisle Tranmere at Brunton Park third round FA Cup game. John Aldridge got sent off, and uh, and we. And we won one nil, like, and it was like it's one of my favourite like Carlisle United memories. Now, for balance, recently you beat us six one at home. Like, I think it was two thousand and one. You beat us six one. So for balance, there, do you know what I mean? But yeah, it was. Uh, it's uh, like yeah, because I think I think Tranmere and Carlisle at times have been on that same sort of like trajectory around those lower leagues. Yeah, we're, we're both very very similar when you think about it. We're both, you know. A couple of miles away from two juggernauts, you've got Sunderland, and Newcastle. There, we've got Liverpool and Everton, and you you just think like in a way, what what are we supposed to do? How how are we supposed to survive in the shadow of these these two just giant clubs that forty thousand, fifty thousand fans? And we had we had a, that mental time in in the nineties where we were pushing for the Premier League, but that's very much an anomaly in our history. Our yeah. lives have been. The, third, the bottom two divisions, same as Carlisle, and like like you, you you've had in and out of the, the national league, the conference. We went down into it for three years, and we're just both. I, do you know, I'm not just saying this now. I've always had like a, a soft spot for Carlisle because they're so similar to us, and as well, I remember the the Jimmy Glass, um, like the, the greatest, like what what. What just a crazy incident that is! Yeah, I was there. I was there, man. It was like it was the it was like it was Sir Jimmy Glass Day only about last week or, the, or ten days ago. I sent a load of my mates the the image that I've got. I was on the pitch. I've got like Ian Stevens number ten shirt that I, like got off him at the end of the game. But yeah, if, if if no one knows what we're talking about, Google just Google Jimmy Glass, uh, and I think yeah. you'll you'll be able to watch the goal. Um, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up the podcast with the, the, the last two sort of features. First, the first thing we're going to do this sort of like dream gig, right? So basically, you can um, I can probably guess what it's going to be, but I'll give you the spiel. You can you you so you, I want you to name a venue. It can be a venue like Nation or Baba, or it can be um, Ministry of Sound or Creamfields, or it can just be like a generic like small room big festival, whatever. And then I want you to curate like three acts. Um, you can be playing or you can just be going. It's up to you. There's not so much like a headliner, so it's not you're not building it up. It's just three acts. They can be whoever the fuck you want. They can be dead alive. They can be you can put back to backs together. They can be a band. They can be DJs, whatever you want. And it's just in the moment. Do you know what I mean? So it's like it could be different yesterday or it could be different even an hour if I asked you. So it's just, you know, don't stress about it. It's just and even like the last few podcasts, I think the lockdowns had an effect on stuff as well with people's people's lineups. So yeah, we're looking for so Matt Hibbert. We're looking for a sort of a dream gig. Where 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 is this gig going to take place? I'm going to choose a club um, that was only there for I think two years in Ibiza. In I think it was literally there 2002 2003, or it might have been 2003 2004. It was called Pinup, and it was in Ibiza town. 
and it was an open air upstairs, like an open air venue. Um, just incredible. Where Garlands were, uh, was that year, and then all day, um, midday till midnight, outside all day, and then the sun would set. It would go dark, but they'd stay open, and then at midnight it would go downstairs into this low ceiling dark room and go till 6 a.m. And the music would, some weeks, Sunday Central would be there and other weeks Gardens would go there. But th- this venue was just um, it's something else. I'm just, I can just remember being there and it would be that time as the sun was setting and just people just like lost in the moment. So the venue, yeah, I'm picking the venue is pin up. The are, you, two, are you doing it? Are you doing it upstairs with the sort of through the sunset, or are you doing it midnight till six a.m. in the darkness? I am picking the day. I'm going all cool. day. Yeah. So do give you me what, three acts. Are you playing? Um, do you know what? I'm going to pick myself, and I'm going to go back to back with my medication guy mate, who I went back to back with at Med for eight years, Tom Williams. Nice. Me and Tom Rillo back to back were. Um, he's the only person I've ever gone like back to back with properly, and I was never a fan of going back to back. With anyone, really, and then we was, went back to back in med, and um, it was just one of them. You, you know, some people you just gel, just buzz off. Yeah, he's now one of, you know, one of my best mates, but like we just worked. So it was became one of them where he put a song on, and he didn't even need to ask me. I'd have an acapella, and he'd cut. He'd lean over and go, "Why don't you put um, this acapella over it?" And I go, "Up," and he like that. Or I'd lean over and go, "Do you know what you should put on now?" Steve Angelo makes a sweet dreams and he'd be like, it's already on. And it was just, it, the times we had just, were just like um, the greatest. Hopefully I have more times like that to come uh, in the rest of my career. Um, but they were just the greatest times. And, you know, we just bounced off each other. We used to get absolutely bladdered. Uh, <laughs> it was crazy times. Like me and him, Friday nights in med, it was just a, a huge party. And it was just, it was an honor to, you know, back to back with him at Nation and at the Arts Club for like seven, eight, nearly eight years. So me, me and him, me and my and Tom Williams back to back. Yeah. Um, the next one is going to be um, Dave Booth and Huey, Dave and Huey, the Garden's legends. Well, a word, yeah. Give us a word on on Dave Booth for anyone that doesn't know. Fill us in a little bit. Not too, you know, don't go crazy, but just have a yeah. word about it. Well, he he sadly passed away last week. I, I believe it was a heart attack. It was very sudden. Just um, I think it was fifty five, fifty four, um, and before like my time, he was a huge DJ in the Manchester scene, like Pips. He was the warm-up DJ for the Stone Roses for their famous Spike Island gig, and he was huge in the Manchester scene. But then I, I became aware of him and got to know him. He was part of, from the very start, Garlands, um, throughout the 90s and early 2000s. It was him and Huey. After, I don't even know Huey's surname, but it was Dave and Huey. If you went to Garlands, it was Dave and Huey, and they just pioneered that feel-good, funky house sound that was the Garland sound. And the reason I chose Pinup as my venue is because that, Time at Garlands, I beat it 2003. It was Dave and Huey from four o'clock till midnight outside on the terrace. And um, I'll never forget, they played the Milk and Sugar remix of Love is in the Air. Um, and the whole just place. And it was one of those, do you know when you have that, you have a moment. And I've never taken drugs. I've only just been, always just been a drinker. Um, and I just, we had them, we were just like this moment, the sun was setting, the planes were flying over. And love is in the air. The whole place was just going to love it. And just, yeah, and every, oh, it was insane. And then every time, we got back to my booth that year, and it was, we're going to Garland. And every time I ever saw Dave Booth play, especially as Dave and Huey, they just had the crowd in the palm of hands, and they weren't afraid. They, they, the pair of them influenced me more 
as a DJ to what I do now more than anyone because they weren't afraid to just pl- go, I'm going to play Candy Staten, Young Hearts Run Free, the original mix, or I'm going to play, you know, uh, Jermaine Stewart, we don't have to take our clothes off, the original mix in the middle of a, ha- a house set, a funky house set. And I've always been someone like now, I'm like, do you know what, I'm going to, in the middle of this tech house, stop it and play Sweet Caroline for two minutes and get the place going bananas. And that there's nothing wrong with, you know, the, or I still play um, loads of like, just like Human League, Don't You Want Me, the original, play that. And they were the ones who made me go, oh, it's okay. It's okay to do this. Look how well it's, look at the crowd. They're loving it. Um, and I used to go, I used to, when I worked in the student union, um, till I used to work till 3 a.m. on the bar on a Saturday and go to G Bar in Liverpool to see Dave Booth. He used to start a set at 5 a.m. and play till close. And closing the G Bar used to be 9, 10 a.m. And he'd just play. And I used to go specifically to see him. And so, yeah, rest in peace, Dave Booth. Um, and uh, him and Huey, back to back. Nice my... And who's the last act? The last act? I'm trying to think. Um, do you know what? I'm, I've got one now. It's and, and bear with me on this and hear me out, everyone. Um, the bet, one of the best sets I've ever heard. Right? It, well, for a start, it's it's the Swedes, right? But it's the Swedes from 2005. It's Axwell, Sebastian Grosso, Steve Angelo from the summer. Well, the year 2005. I saw them in Nation in the annex. The three of them in the annex, bonkers to think. You know, the annex was only 500, but as compared to what they are, and they played back to back to back. I might have short was boxing night one night, um, and this was the summer 2005. It was like not like their breakthrough year, but it was Angelo remixed "Raining Again" Moby. Um, you had 49% Rogue Sock. You had Feel the Vibe Axwell. You had was that, it around the time of Axwell's remix of uh, Hardfire as well. Hard to beat was that like that summer the Hard to Beat remix? Yeah, yeah. What a fucking weapon that is, Jesus! I used to play that that bass on bump 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 bump. It sounds better not coming from my mouth on a Skype mic. <laughs> it was just it was a it was a huge intro. It was like two minutes with just a rumble. Oh, it's, and oh, it's so self indulgent. It's fucking phenomenal. If you haven't ever heard the Axwell mix of Hard to Beat. Um, by hard fight. Stop the podcast now and go and listen to it, and you get yep. fucking, you get the arms on your hairs and your arms standing up. Unreal. And then uh, Angelo had the who's who, the copycat EP it was not so dirty. Copycat. There was literally about like fifteen to twenty tracks that summer in Ibiza, and they were all Axwell and Grosso and Angelo, and because they had so many pseudonyms as well. Like what was not was with Steve Angelo and Eric Prince. Yeah, but then they did super mode. They did the super mode thing. Yeah, he was general moders. They did cross the sky, and there was just like even feel the vibe. What a tune feel the vibe was. Forty nine percent. Yeah, raining again. And I'd, I'd have them, and I'd be like, right, you know, you're playing all your tunes. You're stopping at two thousand six. Not that you all the great stuff. Do you know what I mean? But. It's you're playing 2001 to 2005 stuff like, like what was other Angelo stuff like was it acid? He did like an acid one, um, just loads of so much stuff. But they would do you know what they can be the headliners. Cool. Well, I like I like that as a lineup. Um, and then all right, before we do this, if people want to find out uh, more about you, more about the label, hit me with some socials and some links where people can find out more about you. And you've and you've got a Tramway podcast or something as well, haven't you? Or, or like a, yeah. so hit hit me with a load of links that people can find out more about you. Yeah, my uh, SoundCloud, soundcloud.com forward slash Matt Hibbert. Twitter, at Matt Hibbert. Um, Instagram, which is, my Twitter's more like general life. A lot of music stuff on there, but it's Tramia 
Um, so when we lose every week, I'm getting annoyed. So obviously, there's a lot of politics going on. I'm going to translate all that, but yeah. Um, my music stuff is on Twitter, but my main music stuff is my Instagram, which is MattHibbert17. Um, yeah, MattHibbert uh, forward slash MattHibbert on SoundCloud. It's uh, soundcloud.com forward slash TechnoPrisonersUK um, is the SoundCloud for that. Uh, I put the podcasts both go on Apple Podcasts. So if you just search on your phone on the podcast app for Matt Hibbert, uh, you can subscribe, like them on there, and search for Techno Prisoners. Uh, the Techno Prisoners stuff's on there as well. Um, the Trammy one is This Is Trammy. You can find that on you know, all the usual ones Spotify, SoundCloud, if you like football chat and just general nonsense. Uh, I do. There's another one as well as I do called Pod Balls, which is me and some friends. Just we, We're going through the alphabet letter by letter. It's called The A to Z of Music. Um, and we each picked three songs um, from each letter of the alphabet. We've just done in the last few days. I've just uploaded it. In fact, K, the letter K. So um, it's absolutely terrible, um, <laughs> terrible chat in name banter. But yeah, they're the main ones. Um, and of course, I, I'll plug. I've just got my new EP out on uh, Happy Techno Music. Uh, three tracker. Uh, hey man, it's the Hey Man EP. Um, the tracks Hey Man, The Frenchman, and Shaky Shaky Bouncy Bouncy. That's out on Beatport now. Uh, Spotify, I think it's even on the App Store, uh, well, the Apple Music, um, Juno download, uh, £4.50 for all three tracks. Go and buy them um, and help me uh, buy more Modellos, uh, basically. Well, you might want to use the last, very last feature to oh, do that, or you may be in the mood to do something else. But what I want you to do is name me a track and introduce it, and I will do it in post and add it on but we just want a track to play out the podcast um so like i say it can be one of those tracks from the ep it can be anything that you like you know you've talked about swedes it can be something to do with garlands and dave booth i'm not putting any tracks in your mind i'm just opening up the floor to you sir to play um to play us out with the track i think i'm gonna choose do you know what i'm in the mood to play a happy one so i'm gonna choose my remix of like Likely and the magician, I follow rivers. Nice one, that, cool. Yeah, that was probably the one that got me. That, that was one that last summer just finally you know, got me a bit of traction. And Anton Powers played at Creamfields. And you know what? It's probably still one of my favorite ones I've ever done. So yeah, that cool. is my. We'll play out with that. Right, thank you very much, mate. It's been nice to chat to you. Catch you again yeah. soon. Yeah, um, hopefully we're not playing you in the league next year because that would mean we've been relegated. Um, <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> see you later, mate. Felix Leiter's in the house. The podcast about DJs, what they do, and who they are.